0: Hey everyone, and welcome to Social Sport. I'm your host, Emma Zimmerman, and this show is a member of the Sidious Mag podcast network. On this show, I feature conversations with endurance athletes committed to fostering social change. Okay, stick with me as I tell you something groundbreaking. Are you ready? Sports are not the center of the world, not when we consider all of the big topics and issues that exist in this world. But at the same time, sports are the center of the world. Endurance sports provide us with a great avenue to explore the topics that really matter from climate change to mental health to equity and inclusion. So come along as my guests and I explore one question. How are endurance sports a powerful platform for social change? Liz Thomas joins me on the show today. Liz is a professional hiker, speaker, and outdoor writer who formerly held the women's self-supported speed record on the Appalachian Trail. Liz has been called a through hiking legend by Outside Magazine and the queen of urban hiking by The Guardian. She is the author of Long Trails, Mastering the Art of the through Hike, which received a National Outdoor Book Award in 2017. And she's the editor in chief for the outdoor web magazine, Treeline Review. In this episode, we talk all about Liz's urban hiking and how it relates to race, socioeconomic class, and other identities. We also talk about her work with the Trust for Public Lands and how to make both through hiking and outdoor writing more accessible. Liz is truly a powerful person if this intro tells you anything, and I know you'll enjoy hearing from her. Hey Liz, welcome to Social Sports. So good to to meet you today, to have you on the podcast. Can you tell everyone who you are, where you are right now, and what you're passionate about?
1: Thanks so much for having me on, Emma. So I am Liz Snorkel-Thomas. I am a thru-hiker who once held the women's self-supported Appalachian Trail Speed Record, but have gone on to hike the Triple Crown of Long distance hiking, which includes the Pacific Crest Trail and the Continental Divide Trail, as well as 20 other long wilderness hikes. But something that I'm really, really passionate about is urban through hiking and taking that same spirit of long distance hiking into the front country for everyone.
0: Otherwise known as uh, the through hiking legend by Outside Magazine, I'll just throw that out there. But I haven't had many through hikers on, I've only had one other. So I'm excited to have another through hiker, but especially another through hiker who's done so much important work for the outdoor community such as yourself
1: <laughs> thank you
0: so i know that you had a upbringing that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily peg as the type of upbringing that would bring you to the life you have right now i mean you you had a pretty suburban childhood in sacramento um i know that your mother was also raised in a part of japan where it wasn't necessarily celebrated for women to be physically active so i'd love to hear a little bit more about that childhood and how it led or didn't to the very outdoor-centered life you have now.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I didn't grow up in a very outdoorsy family, uh, but I had a first-grade teacher who was really excited about getting us on field trips outdoors, and there was this little nature center by the river that uh, had actually been set aside by a conservationist who fought to have it not be turned into a golf course. And that was such an important place for me to like connect with nature for the first time as a young person. And I loved it so much that I convinced my family like, hey, can we go there on the weekend? Uh, and, you know, it's free. So it's even though my parents were not big outdoorsy, they were like, hey, something that our kids want to do that's free. OK, let's do it. And also, like I had my third grade birthday party there and I invited everyone in the class uh And, you know, that was another thing where it's like my parents were like, oh, I don't have to pay for the bowling alley or whatever else that normal (laughs) third graders do for their party. So I think that really rooted me in a love for nature, even though I was not extreme about it. I was the slowest runner in my fifth grade class, Mm -hmm. Um, but it didn't matter because I just loved being outdoors.
0: So how did that, you know, finding your own love for nature, how did that translate to getting into backpacking. Cause I know you went on your first backpacking trip. I believe it was 2007, right?
1: Let's see. That was my first, you know, that might actually be true. Um, yeah, my first through hike was in 2007, but yeah, come to think of it, that might've, I, I did go on, um, a, a school backpacking trip. Um, but you know, I think it actually might've been in 2007 too. So yeah, it, it wasn't until I was an adult and really had so was, done,
0: I'm sorry, your first backpacking trip. Was that your first through hike then?
1: No, I had gone on a, a a school trip, but I would say probably like my second backpacking trip. Wow.
0: wow, wow, wow! And that was the Tahoe Rim Trail, correct?
1: Right, right, yeah.
0: So, what was that experience like? Because I would assume it was a positive experience to lead you to what you do right now. Yeah.
1: You know, I was terrified of bears the whole time. I, my stove malfunctioned halfway through and I ran out of food. My feet hurt so much. And like, I wasn't really big on taking ibuprofen or any painkillers. And like, they hurt so much. And I was like, I think I need to do this. Uh, But, you know, I loved it. And I I just felt so exhilarated after I'd done it. I was like, I need to do more of this
0: how did you get from that experience to, I mean, a pretty short timeline, 2007, that trail, and then you had the speed record on the Appalachian Trail in 2011. Can you tell me a little bit about that development?
1: Yeah. So, um, it, you know, 2007, when I hiked the Tahoe Rim Trail, that was really like when I first was like, you know what, this was a a short, shorter through hike. I wanted to make sure that I liked it before I committed to something like the Appalachian Trail. So the next year, knowing that I liked it, having learned like, hey, maybe some footwear that doesn't hurt would be something I want to start with. Uh, I hiked the Appalachian Trail, and that was like a, a crash course. And like I thought I knew so much from having hiked the Tahoe Rim Trail, and there was so much more to learn. Um, and then after that, I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail and the Continental Divide Trail, kind of each summer after that, and while I was on the Continental Divide Trail, I was kind of like fantasizing about going back to the Appalachian Trail and being like, hey, I've learned so much on these through hikes. I wonder how I can challenge myself on the Appalachian Trail. And that's kind of led to the speed record in 2011.
0: So I think, you know, some people listening might be familiar with, you know, there's a lot of runners who listen to this podcast. So it might be familiar with like short trail races or maybe even like ultras that they're doing for a day at a time. And then they might be familiar with, like hiking as a more slow meditative experience. I'm curious what the day-to-day reality is like of going for a speed record on a hike, because I'm sure like I envision it as kind of a mesh of those two experiences, but I have no idea. So I'd love to hear from you what that's like.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think with, at least with a self-supported speed record, like I had, uh, you know, like I didn't have a team who was meeting me at road crossings or handing me food. So it's a lot of logistics that normally on a race, your team would be helping you figure out. Um, And I think, you know, a lot of that's like mental energy and understanding what's going to come up next. And what I, it's like anticipating what I'm going to need before I need it. So being very self-aware, I think is part of it. And really just like, you know, with a race, like you can give it your all. And then the next day, like watch TV and prop your feet up. And uh, you know, with a, with a speed hike, you really have to balance that, like how much can I give knowing that I'm going to have to get up in the morning and do this all over again for months?
0: That that was 80 days, correct?
1: Yes, 80 and a half so, days.
0: So how did you get up in the morning and keep doing it over again? What kept you going and what kept you, you know, motivated of, to do it so fast?
1: Yeah, part of it was because I had hiked the Appalachian Trail before. I, I was really, really excited to see it again and to experience it, first of all, as as someone who had learned all of these skills and seen other places and specifically, you know, I'd seen some of the challenges of the Continental Divide Trail, which have to do with like connectivity and private and public land. And the Appalachia Trail is awesome because most of those issues have been figured out. So I just felt so grateful and appreciative of everything I was seeing that it really excited and motivated me to see what was around the corner.
0: That's so cool. I think that's the ideal experience. That's what you want through a thru hike is just to be excited about the next thing. So yeah, I want to. I just die- like
1: had a smile on my face the whole time I was hiking.
0: <laughs> that's that's surprising. I think a lot of people would not expect that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to dive into your writing a little bit because I think a lot of your writing, like you touch on this joy element of hiking. You said you have a smile on your face, but a lot of your writing is really also about the reality of it and how it's not all joyful there's a lot of joy but it's it's realistic and and I think it's also making through hiking more accessible to other people and so I'd love to talk a little bit more about those two things but first of all let's start with the the book long trails mastering the art of through hiking or mastering the art of the through hike sorry that you wrote in 2017 what was the inspiration behind writing that book
1: Yeah, I think the inspiration was that I had spent a lot of unnecessary money and had spent a lot of unnecessary pain, both physically and emotionally, learning things about thru-hiking the hard way, and yet thru-hiking had still changed my life and like mentally rewired me into a much more emotionally stable and happy person um, and someone who felt uh, like I could prioritize and, and really have a purpose. So I really wanted to share that joy with others while also minimizing those barriers and and to entry that I had experienced.
0: So what are some of those barriers to entry? Yeah,
1: you know, so when I wrote my book, there were only two other books out there uh, by major publishers on how to through hike, and they were very much so written by um, these sort of like, like expert hikers, kind of um, you know, these white men who were really revered and it was kind of like, here's the way I do it and that's the way you can do it too. And I really wanted to have this narrative. Like I realized I was going to be the first woman, the first person of color writing this how to mm-hmm. through hike book. And I had this overwhelming responsibility, not just to tell my story and be like, this is the Liz Thomas way of getting a speed record or whatever, um, but instead have it be kind of this collective story of so many different through hikers who weren't seeing their faces and their voices and perspectives heard on, you know, very, like, very strategic, like, how do I get started through hiking?
0: What has been some of the feedback, because I'm sure that's so important to some people, like women and people of color and women of color, especially to see that voice represented in this book. What has been some of the comments or feedback that people have made on that?
1: Yeah, I think people really appreciate um, having these perspectives, Um, you know, what I also wanted to include a diversity of ages. And I know that a lot of people have reached out to me who are retirement age, who are going on their first through hike and have been like, I'm so happy you included the perspective of Dean, you know, going in his sixties and he's going a different pace than you, but he's having the time of his life and he's thinking about gear and food. And a lot of people have really appreciated that.
0: Yeah. So much goes back to like, you can't be what you can't see. You can't do what you can't see. And, and I think like, representation sometimes, like there's the narrative that it gets overstated, you know, it's like how much, how important is representation really, you know, but this just goes to show that it really is important to so many people. Yeah, for sure.
1: Uh, Another piece of feedback is that I included a lot of information about, you know, your relationship as a hiker to your family. How do you tell, if you're a young person, how do you tell your family that you're going to go off solo hiking in the woods for five months? Or, If you're a parent, how do you tell your family and your kids, I'm going to go off and hike for five months? So having those conversations and these were the sorts of things I wasn't seeing in other through hiking books. It was very much so focused on the bears and, uh, you know, blisters. And there's so much more that goes into through hiking. That's really a sort of social and, and mental preparation.
0: Yeah, and I think it's so easy to romanticize through hiking. I mean, you talk about this joy, which I know is part of it, I'm sure is part of it, and that's represented in the book. I mean, it has beautiful pictures, but what I also love about it is that there's a discussion of the nitty-gritty. I mean, you talk about your family, navigating your relationship with your family on the trail and finances and jobs. Are there any other, or maybe you want to go into more detail on some of those, but what nitty-gritty realities should aspiring through hikers be aware of.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, there the the things that I love about through hiking is it's it's really the highs are the highest and the lows at the time feel like the lowest. Um, you know, you're sitting in the mud on the side of a road and you've run out of food and water. And, you know, it feels like you're in despair. And I love the that the trail keeps reminding like no matter how bad things may seem, Things move on. Things get better. And that's one of the great lessons that I think through hiking can teach people to bring back to their lives.
0: And I think it also goes back to why it's a place for everyone. And it's a place where everyone can learn some something. It seems like there are just so many lessons that can be relatable and can be important to people of all different walks of life, all different backgrounds. That's what it seems like from hearing you talk and from reading your writing.
1: Yeah. um, Being in nature can be very humbling, but I think that's also very good for humans. Yeah.
0: So what would you say to someone who maybe has never done a through hike, wants to do a through hike, but isn't quite sure if they can swing it maybe financially, or maybe they have a family or just other responsibilities? What would you say?
1: Yeah. I mean, the first chapter actually the first two chapters I really talk about all of these things where like I really wanted to set it up to be a from dream to reality sort of of book where you first get uh an inkling to go on a through hike you're like what's involved in that how much does it cost what am I going to need and and really kind of anticipating those questions that your family is going to have or that you might mm-hmm. have about how am I going to make this work um so I would say in the process of of telling my own story, but also interviewing a bunch of other hikers from different walks of life on how they've tackled and gone about solving these problems and, and making it happen to go on trail. I mean, I learned a lot, a lot writing the book, um, and hearing those stories. And I think a lot of times hearing those stories of how others swing it can really empower you to go out and do it yourself.
0: Well, I'm sorry to put you on the spot a bit, but I'm super curious. Are there any story, like any one story that most stands out to you or that you learn the most from?
1: Yeah, um, there's one through hiker named Scarecrow who went out uh, and I think he had two or three kids who were like maybe around like eight or 10 at the time. And, you know, I learned so much about how he navigated, you know, communicating with his family and making his kids feel like they were part of the hike, even though they were at home, and, um, you know, supporting his spouse and the conversations that they had together about. No, what are we going to do? The air conditioner breaks. Uh, like, what sort of situation is going to be intense enough that you're going to have to get off trail? Um, and that was so powerful. Those those discussions that they had it really made me think. Like, th- these are important ways that more people can go out by just knowing the right questions to ask one another.
0: Totally. Yeah. It seems like because it be- can become a affair of everyone who is part of your life. You know, your family, those you live with. It's there's probably so much fear coming from other people and so many considerations it's not just about you taking the time to be yeah, on the trail for sure. So I'm sure that's powerful for sure so you mentioned that this person's name was Scarecrow and I'm just thinking that you haven't told the story about how you got your trail name and I need to hear that so would you mind taking a moment and explaining where your name comes from
1: Yeah, so my trail name is Snorkel and trail names are these sort of like nicknames that hikers have for one another on a long trail. I've heard it's like I haven't been a burning man, but I've heard it's kind of like that. It's a way to shed your old identity and become the person you want to be on trail. And another benefit, too, is I feel like it's just so much easier to remember people's trail names because there's a funny story, usually a funny story attached to it. So I actually started the Appalachian Trail my first time hiking it without a sleeping bag, uh, which I would not recommend.
0: So what was the plan?
1: The plan was, you know, I had kept this like very lightweight fleece blanket. I was trying to like go as light as I could, but I hadn't really figured out what was too light to be comfortable. So about 30 miles in, there's a gear store and I ended up spending a lot of money on a sleeping bag. But I was like, this is not going to, I'm not going to be able Mm. to keep going. And about 500 miles in, I see that same sleeping bag for sale in another gear store. And realize uh, their sleeping bag looks all warm and fluffy, and mine is sad and deflated. I'm like, what gives I spent so much money on the sleeping bag. They told me it lasts 10 years. Why is it mine fluffy? And the guy at the store is like, oh, did you get it wet? And I was like, no. And he's like, well, uh what else could it be? And I'm like, well, I stick my head inside to keep my face warm. And he's like, oh, your breath, the moisture from your breath condenses the down, it, it, it creates moisture on the down. So that's what causes it not to be so fluffy. So people were joking, other hikers were joking that I need a snorkel to stick up out the top. <laughs>
0: uh, so that's
1: how I got my trail name. And that's I did so find, funny. I did stop putting my head inside by sticking back.
0: So, so your first trail name, it sticks with you right throughout everything. I feel like that's you know, a lot of pressure.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, some hikers will have a different trail name okay. um, for every trail they hike. Usually people stick with the same one. And you know, one thing is like, if someone gives you a trail name, you don't have to accept it. The trail name is something that you accept.
0: Okay. Okay. Got it. For some reason, I, I I was like envisioning almost this like hazing situation, which makes no sense. If you know the trail community, if you spend any time with like trail hikers, but that's great. I like that a lot more.
1: <laughs> yeah. Some people try to give other people names, but if they're like, you know what, that's not me. I don't accept that. Nothing you can do about that.
0: Great. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> So, moving back to your writing, I know you're also the editor, editor in chief. I'm sorry of TreeLine Review. For anyone listening who isn't aware of TreeLine Review, can you kind of give an overview of what it is and what you all do there?
1: Yeah, so TreeLine Review was uh, we I created TreeLine Review with my hiking partner because we really wanted more representation in outdoor gear reviews. It seemed like in many ways, outdoor gear was one of the last um, segments of outdoor writing where we weren't seeing the representation of people's perspectives of experiencing gear. And we so we do objective gear reviews, side-by-side comparisons. And one of the cool things we do is we don't only say like, hey, I'm the writer, here's my expert opinion on, this one is the best. We also look at everyday customer reviews. Um, and we also look to see what the so-called experts who are writing like that say, and mishmash them together to kind of like tri- triangulate our findings. So. It's kind of like a rock solid way of knowing, like, we liked it, everyday users liked it, experts liked it, this is awesome. And our main goal is to save people money and time researching gear so they can spend more time outdoors.
0: That's so important. And to me, when I look through everything on Treeline Review website, you know, there's these how-to guides, these where-to guides and the gear reviews like you're talking about. To me, it seems like it's dealing with a lot of barriers to entry and kind of just making the sport more accessible. Can you talk a little bit more about like that concept of accessibility and how your reviews, how this online site can do that?
1: Yeah, so first of all, uh, we're very deliberate about the writers that we choose. And we aim to have about half of our writers be people of color, LGBTQ, um, with a diversity of ages and abilities. Um, so that's one way that we really try to increase representation. But of course, all of our writers are guides and top of their field, really, really experienced. And they're also really dedicated to, you know, not being gatekeepers. They really want to get other people out. So, you know, just the language that we use is so important. Making sure that we define terms that can end up being kind of like a gate, a lot of like outdoorsy terms or the way that outdoor people write can um, can alienate some readers. So we really just want to use plain language that people no matter what level of outdoor experience they have uh, we don't make assumptions about what they know and we really just explain it so that everyone can get super excited about going outdoors
0: and that seems so simple when you say it but it, it takes a lot of intention to be like I need to think about the language I'm using and make it accessible to anyone really and and I think like yes it seems simple but it really is a practice that, I hope other editors of, of similar reviews or anyone in the outdoor industry or any really sort of sport community takes, I hope that they can take on that practice as well.
1: Yeah. And it's something too where we're training writers and especially when we're working with writers who run for other publications, it, it takes a little bit of undoing of the practices that have been so established in outdoor writing.
0: Right. right. And how do you do that? I mean, like, what is it like to because I'm sure most outdoor writers, they're used to talking to a certain population who has like maybe some knowledge. So how do you make sure that they're writing in an inclusive way?
1: Yeah, you know, I think part of it has to do with really um, getting across our mission and who our readers are. And our readers are, we we did a big, big reader survey last year. And I had assumed that a lot of our readers were beginners or just getting in outdoors activities. And it turned out that we have people all over the spectrum. There are a lot more very advanced expert users who wanted the sort of detailed spec stuff, which we also do. Um, So I think, you know, making sure that that our writers understand all of those different audience standpoints and perspectives and what they want is really important. But also, you know, one of the things too that we're dedicated to is training um, people who maybe haven't written for other outdoor publications. Um, So in some ways, if people haven't written for other outdoor publications, they don't have preconceived notions of what outdoor speak is like.
0: This episode of the Social Sport Podcast is sponsored by Ope Running. Ope Running is an ethical running apparel brand designed and produced in Minnesota. The mission of Ope is truly incredible. Their performance apparel is high quality made of recycled and dead stock fabrics, which is pretty unique. Ope even offsets the carbon emissions for every order they ship. So if you are a runner who cares about your impact on our planet and the people who reside here, and I hope you care about that, then this apparel is for you. I recently have been loving my Ope running apparel and especially my tiny lil shorts, which I have in the ocean blue color They are made of a really breathable fabric, so they're ideal for spring and summer running. They're also super bright and fun, and I've gotten many compliments on them while running around New York. And as a bonus, they're called Tiny Lil Shorts, which is just a really fun name, and all of Ope's apparel has fun names. If you want to try out this incredible brand, head on over to OpeRunning.com and use code SocialSport at checkout to get 15% off your order. Again, that's O-P-E-Running.com and code social sport. So we're kind of getting into some barriers to entry, some being, you know, language. And one barrier to entry, I think, is is access to the outdoors. You know, a lot of people think to go on a long hike, you have to be able to access remote area. You have to be able to access a certain trail, but you beg to differ. You do something different. You are very into urban hiking as well. I'd love to hear about your first urban hiking experience because now it's something you've done all over the place.
1: Yeah. So my first urban through hike uh, was in Los Angeles and I was living in Colorado at the time and I got first heard about it because someone cold emailed me uh, on my website was like hey I came up with this route that is mileage wise very similar to the John Muir Trail and elevation gain very similar to the John Muir Trail which goes through the Sierra and it's this 214 mile very revered difficult uh long distance hike and um would you like to come do it and I was thinking well you know it's cold in Colorado I don't ski and the high country is all covered in snow sure why not LA sounds warm and I ended up falling in love with it it was so hard but Uh, I saw so much. And in many ways, it it reminded me so much of being on a thru-hike in terms of that sort of mental flow that I got into and the physical exertion and the people that I met and the connection I felt to the land.
0: So when you're doing an urban thru-hike, are you sleeping outside? How does that work? Like, I'm sure the planning is so much different than being on trail.
1: Oh, yeah. So the planning, um, it depends on where I am. In some cities, um, there are no there are there no camping ordinances and also a lot of times when i'm urban through hiking i you know I'm, I'm a woman who's hiking solo so camping isn't necessarily depending on where i am something that i feel comfortable doing um luckily i've been very fortunate to have friends who live in different cities so um so one way that i've been able to make the urban through hikes work is like if i'm going to with planning my hikes around where i know people So I knew a lot of people in Seattle, for example. So I was able to plan this route around like, oh, my friend lives in this part of town and my other friend lives in this part of town and walking, you know, like 25 miles, the long way, the circuitous way between two friends' houses.
0: That's so cool. Yeah, it seems like just a different experience and almost a more social experience in a lot of ways, or maybe it could be a more social experience if you make it that way.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the fun thing, too, is that a lot of people like when I hiked San Francisco, I had friends who I had made in elementary school who I hadn't seen since elementary school. who were like, yeah, sure. You can stay in my house for a night Um, and all the way up in these different stages of my life. I was it was so cool to reconnect and have an excuse to reconnect and have them walk with me for a while. And I think, um, you know, there's something really exciting about what what something like an urban hike can can bring up.
0: I love that so much. So you mentioned that you consider your safety when you're doing urban hikes, especially as a woman hiking alone. And I'm so happy you brought that up because that's something I think about a lot. And I think a lot of endurance athletes, you know, whether hikers or trail runners think about, and on one hand, you want to, you don't want to give into fear, right? You know, you want to be brave. You want to be able to do everything that you want to do. On the other hand, the reality of this world we live in is it's not as safe to be a woman alone. It's not as safe to be a person of color alone. How do you navigate those two conflicting realities?
1: Yeah, you know, I think for a lot of athletes, we're looking to challenge ourselves and to do things that scare us. And for me... I've learned so many skills about the outdoors that like, you know, bears and being out in rainstorms and and the sort of things that scare a lot of people about, especially about being alone in the outdoors. I'm like, okay, I feel comfortable. I have the skills where if X, Y and Z happens, I react by doing this. But in an urban environment, I, I find it's like even scarier. And so for me, that is actually an extra push to do it. But I, I think also, I think there's a really interesting question of like, why are we scared of walking around? And like, is it possible by walking, can we reclaim the space? Mm-hmm.
0: That's so important. Like too often, we just engage with the fact that like we are scared. So what do we do rather than why are we scared? And that's, yeah, so important to take a step back and think about you know, like the systemic issues that exist. <laughs> So I know that you've done urban hikes, you know, since that LA experience, you've done San Francisco, Seattle, Chicago, Portland, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, Denver, New York City. I'm sorry if I missed some, um, but that's the list I have. Is that accurate?
1: Actually, I haven't done Pittsburgh yet. Oh, you haven't? Okay. Um, Let's see. Tucson was really cool. I actually was about to go to San Antonio. I had done all the mapping and the planning and the week I was supposed to go was March, uh, like 20th of last year. And it was like, okay, I don't think I'm going to go get up right (laughs) now. Um, but I I am really excited to do that someday because I do have Mm -hmm. that all mapped out and planned.
0: So what keeps drawing you to these urban environments?
1: I think, you know, in some ways I feel like just like on a wilderness trek, I get at walking, you have a page to appreciate the land and where you're walking and its history and how it came to be, how it is. Um, and the people who live there and the forces that shaped what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true for being on a long trail in a wilderness as much as it is. I mean, arguably even more, maybe in a city.
0: That's yeah, that's so interesting. And I feel like there's probably, there's so much history everywhere and we don't often engage engage with their or, or almost like give ourselves the chance to engage with it in the way that I imagine you would if you're literally walking on this land and, and like walking through the, these places by yourself and spending so much time doing it.
1: Yeah and I think the process of urban hiking too um, just navigating and getting to destinations requires you to be a little more observant than you would if you're walking on your commute for example and I think that ends up um, kind of changing at least my perspective of like the way that I look around.
0: Mm. What do you mean the way that you look around? Is that just like in a slowing down sort of way?
1: Yeah. Some of it's a slowing down and some of it's a a processing what I see and thinking how it connects to the greater area.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, so this relates to something I wanted to ask about. I watched that video that was done about your Seattle urban hike, which we'll link to in the show notes. It was really awesome. But one thing you mentioned was how cities are often separated by social status, but in urban hiking, you are allowed to kind of move around those boundaries. And I'd love to learn more about that dynamic of how urban hiking relates to race and class and other categories that have been used to separate us for so long.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, redlining is a big issue that impacts cities and, um, you know, as an urban hiker, you're walking across these lines that were drawn on maps that are, you know, separated people for so long. And another thing too, um, that it becomes a separator is hills. So in cities like Los Angeles or San Francisco or Seattle, people of higher socioeconomic classes are often on the top of hills, and the valleys below um, are those who are less wealthy. And as a result, as a Norman hiker, if you're going up a hill, you know it feels to me uh, physically very similar to going up a hill in the wilderness, and yet um, the separation between those two worlds is much more than on a mountain, for example.
0: That's so intriguing because it almost makes me think that urban hiking allows you or gives you the opportunity to ask these questions in a lot of ways that you might not be for. It's like, you know, how many of us think about how does this hill divide us based on economics, based on our class? And and I feel like more than just noticing these things about your land, the land that you're on, it probably just allows you to ask questions too, which is so important to dismantling oppression, dismantling dividing lines.
1: Yeah. And it, that was something that I really thought about when I was hiking. And when I was in Seattle, for example, um, I was hiking solo at night and there was one neighborhood where a journalist I was working with was like, you know, you'll be fine walking at night as a woman everywhere except this one neighborhood. And I was like, uh, I, okay. Like, I, I don't know. Um, and then, of course, I find myself in that neighborhood walking at night. And as soon as my route turns to go up the hill, you know, I was, like, thinking, like, should I call someone? Like, and then as soon as I go up the hill, it's, like, quarter mile. And there's these multi-million dollar homes. And I was, like, what have we done in our society to have it so that places yeah. that are so close to each other have such disparity?
0: Yeah. And how often do we have to, like it- – I don't know. I think sometimes things are so much more powerful when you see them with your own eyes and when you really experience them, which is unfortunate. We should be working to dismantle these truths in society, these, these divisions and this, this blatant oppression and inequality, even if we're not near it, but there's something about just being part of it and seeing it and walking it that I think really makes you think about it.
1: Yeah. And I think, You know, for me too, walking on foot through these through these cities also makes me ask a lot of questions about infrastructure. Like, Mm -hmm. why are there not sidewalks? Why are there not accessible sidewalks? What about public transportation? Um, And, you know, I go out in these cities for fun, but there are millions of people who walk because they don't have access to other forms of transportation and you know, I really hope that by urban hiking, people will start asking these questions, being like, what what sort of society are we building? What sort of infrastructure are we building? And who does it benefit?
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of what you're doing is bringing people to ask those questions. And I know that one of the urban hikes you did, or you've maybe done a number of urban hikes in partnership with Trust for Public Land, Notably, you created a trail that connected parks and playgrounds in New York City, which makes me so happy because I live in New York City. So could you tell me a little bit more about that partnership and that specific project too?
1: Yeah. So um, the Trust for Public Land has been, for the last 20 years, working with with the Department of Education to take a lot of schoolyards, public schoolyards that um, essentially look like parking lots. And especially for me, not from New York City. You know, like I see these schools and I'm like, where do the kids play? Like, there's nothing but cement there. And so they've been transforming them, putting together the funding. Um, and one of the really, really cool things is they, they the students design it. They are like, hey, we want a basketball court. We want a tree here. We want this kind of art. Um, so they're like training these students also on their first like sort of like uh, landscape architecture, uh, like design class. And they've been able to green all of these different schoolyards, which are open during the weekends as public parks, because as you know, um, New York City doesn't have a lot of land that can just get turned into a park when people sure. need it. So, yes. so <laughs> they've kind of been able to use this land that's already public land and bring parks to neighborhoods that otherwise are not parked.
0: Mm, so cool. So what was the process like of creating that trail? And then how can I find that? I would love to go on that trail. And how can anyone, you know, in in urban environments, connect with the work that you've done in their cities? Yeah.
1: Um, so the process of going through that, building that route was I worked with the Trust for Public Land to figure out what schools they had had turned into green parks. Um, and there are schools on all five boroughs. So I really wanted to connect, also have the, this uh, discussion about, you know, like this is work that needs to be done everywhere. Um, and and I also wanted to get an understanding of like, Who in the city has access to green parks other than through the school, through the Trust for Public Lands school parks? Um, And it it was so fascinating seeing the differences between parks across the boroughs and sort of the investment Mm -hmm. in parks, because I would say in general, uh, New York parks are really well funded, Um, but there's definitely disparities, Um, disparities in access to parks, disparity in the sort of resources that the parks have. And seeing them by foot and seeing them so like boom, 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 day after day. Um, and watching the neighborhoods change on foot and change again on foot as I keep moving moving really made me aware of all of those disparities.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can imagine, you know, living in New York, but but again, you're seeing all of them. You're seeing all of them in such a short period of time, it probably really confounds the, the effect of thinking about disparity. Yeah,
1: yeah, but I mean, one of the things that really warmed my heart was you know, going to these parks, especially after school hours, when they open up to to everyone and seeing grandparents and seeing Tai Chi classes and people doing playing chess and just like all sorts of people from the neighborhood gathering in this space and being outdoors and spending time with another. And, you know, that's what being outdoors should be about. And it's something everyone should have access to.
0: Absolutely. Yes. So how can people access the work that you've done in urban environments, this trail, you know, Posted somewhere? Or like, how can people find that?
1: Yeah, so the Trust for Public Land has a few stories about that route and um, the goals and some photos from it. So I can share that link with you, and you can share it with your audience as well. For sure.
0: Yeah, so people can find that in the show notes if you're listening right now, and and there are other resources in other cities as well because I know you've done different projects. In other cities, Yeah,
1: some of my cities, I do have maps that are available. Some of the cities. So, for example, um, in Los Angeles, I hiked a route that has become kind of an established route now called the Inman 300. Mm-hmm. So if you Google Inman 300, there's actually a free like guidebook. So you can go out and hike it yourself. Um, that's really, really detailed. So I would say um, that's a really good resource. I also the San Francisco route um, is based on a stairway uh, stairway book by Ada about Bad- Um, called like stairways of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's some really interesting resources out there for people interested in urban hiking.
0: So cool. Like, honestly, talking to you right now is making me want to go out and do a a long urban hike. Like it just sounds, it's just so many things about it are so interesting and so much more accessible than other forms of hiking. So thank you for that. (laughs) I'm super inspired now. Yeah.
1: And you know, know, the cool thing about urban hiking too, is I feel just as tired after a day of urban hiking as I do being in the wilderness
0: i can imagine i mean and also like i i feel like the you know urban cement whatever it is you're walking on it does more to your legs it's less forgiving so i can imagine that's tiring for sure i know you're doing more work with trust for public land now and you're pushing congress i guess they have a campaign to push congress to create this emergency park funding i'd love to hear more about that campaign and why it's so important to you
1: Yeah, so uh, the Trust for Public Land is actually leading uh, at least 200 different organizations, which span from community groups to nonprofits to for-profit businesses, just a a big coalition of people who are interested in seeing this um, Parks, Jobs and Equity Act. And the idea is that a lot of local parks budgets were hit super, super hard in 2020 by COVID. Uh, And as a result, like first of all in 2020, like interest in being outdoors and spending time outdoors totally ballooned because everyone was like, Hey, this is a safe thing I can do. And a lot of people have come to love it. And they're like, I want to keep doing this. So there's a lot more interest in park. There's a lot more park users. And at the same time, park funding has gone down. And so we're kind of like stuck in this situation where like park funding has gone down and like people who are seasonal workers for parks, for example, like don't have jobs. So and meanwhile also with the equity aspect as i saw in new york there are neighborhoods that have far fewer parks than others and have far fewer resources so this is kind of like a cool way to address a lot of different problems by helping helping locally those budgets to get parks back up and running to build parks in neighborhoods where there aren't parks right now that where there's a lot of interest in it and also to create jobs in the process of doing that so we're giving people access to the outdoors we're creating jobs um, and, uh, we're helping with COVID relief. Really. So it's kind of like this, this beautiful bringing together a lot of different people.
0: Yeah. So many things bundled together, which is what any solution should do. I think.
1: Yeah. It's, it's really creative and well thought out. And I'm, I'm super excited that they're, they're pushing to get it through
0: and listeners can get involved in that as well. Right. There's, um, we'll put a link in the show notes, but to where they can get more information.
1: For sure. Um, And also there's a, there's um, a petition that you can sign on the Trust for Public Lands website. And I know they're trying to get a lot of people um, to sign it so that we can really show others' interest in getting this done.
0: Awesome. So if you're listening right now, you should go sign that Right now it's it's important for so many reasons as Liz was just talking about and you can learn more about it too. So I'll put all those links in the show notes as well. Lots of action items coming out of this conversation today, which is great. I love that. That's what I want. <laughs> so Liz, we're talking about this project. Anything else on your mind that you're looking forward to? Any writing projects? Any big hikes? What is coming up for you?
1: Yeah. Um, let's see. You know, I think this trust for public land thing is something that I'm really, really excited about. And I think right now there's there's quite a few bills. I mean, it's it's changing so quickly that like keeping on top of them can sometimes be a challenge. But there's a lot of really interesting, important bills that have to do with getting outdoors and um, equity and, and creating access to space. So um, I'm really excited about that opportunity right now. And that opportunity has existed um, since the beginning of this year.
0: Cool. Awesome. So all the more reason to, to get people involved in it if they're listening. So you're doing such incredible work. I want to have a little bit of fun. I have a few rapid fire fun questions. I always like to wrap up with those. So if you're ready, what is your favorite hike you've ever done?
1: Ooh, um, <laughs> that's, that's a hard one. Um, I really like the Benton Mackay Trail, uh, it, which is it starts in the
0: Smokies. Um, I'm very oh. fond of it. I'm sure that's beautiful.
1: Yeah, you, it's it's a little bit like the AT, but more um, wild.
0: Okay, okay. Do you have a hike that you want to do that you've never done before? Oh, I'm sure again oh, there are so, multiple,
1: but so so many. Um, I'm really excited about hiking um, the Superior Hiking Trail or the Ice Age Trail up cool. in in yeah up in Wisconsin and Minnesota. And you've never done that one before. No, I haven't. I haven't hiked in either of those states before.
0: Oh, yeah. Do you have plans for when you're going to do it or not quite decided yet?
1: Uh, I'm not quite decided yet. Yeah.
0: Cool, cool. Well, I'll have to keep updated and everyone will have to keep updated and and see when you do that and when you do all your hikes and follow along. So do you have a favorite thing you have eaten on the trail or that you like to eat while you're on the trail?
1: Oh, Okay. So if you ever find yourself in the Canadian Rockies, there's this place uh, near... BAMF, I think, uh, that's like like half a mile off the Great Divide Trail called Truffle Pigs. And it is amazing. You should go there.
0: What type of food is it?
1: Uh, um, I would say it's New American, but it's Canadian okay. in Canada. That's so New Canadian.
0: <laughs> <laughs> new Canadian. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> is there a book you've read or a movie you've watched over the past year that you most recommend?
1: Yeah, I just read Minor Feelings. and <gasps> I love um, that book. Yeah, I I am like so stoked on it.
0: Yeah, so she's so good. Yeah, we'll we'll link that in the show notes too. Book of essays. Yeah, totally. Totally agree with that one. So the last question that I ask everyone is why is sport a powerful platform for social change?
1: So, you know, I think that sport is a way to get people who care about one thing to think about how that thing is related to things that have a broader impact to other people. So for example, one of my urban hikes was a brewery hike where I hiked to all the breweries in Denver. And lots of people in Denver like hiking and like beer and don't really care about like creating equitable and accessible infrastructure. And by hiking to all the breweries, it became a way to talk about like, oh, hey, there's no sidewalks here. Or, um, you know, like there are lots of people in Denver who get around on these unsafe streets that don't have crosswalks, um, those sorts of things that impact all sorts of different people. Um, so, I, I think that's really important to be able to get a hook to use sport as a hook to talk about these conversations that need to be had.
0: Totally, yeah. And I just hope that this conversation serves as, I guess, a hook. I'll say for my <laughs> listeners to to kind of think about how they move around the places where they live, the places where they recreate, where they visit, and and just think about this land, think about these cities and how they're divided, how they're created. I think that the movement that you do walking around these places, going on these long hikes just really allows you to ask questions. And I hope it pushes other people to do the same thing as well.
1: Yeah, I hope so too.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been such a treat to speak with you and all the work that you're doing is so important. So thank you for taking the time today. Thank you for having me on, Emma. And thank you for your mission of your podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Social Sport. You can find all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes or at citysmag.com in the podcasts tab under Social Sport. One thing you can do to support the show is to head on over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review, that really helps get the show out there. Of course, you can also follow Social Sport on Instagram at Pod, And you can check out the Social Sport newsletter, which comes out once a month. And that's over at socialsport.substack.com. Thanks for listening today. And as always, stay sporty and keep resisting.